welcome to episode four. Before I get started, I just quickly wanted to say that I've been getting my stats. There's people from all over the world that are listening to me, and I just think it's really cool, and I just want to say thanks again. I have traveled a little bit, but not as much as I'd like, and it's just cool that my voice has traveled to places that I never have. So thank you for that. So this episode, we're going to talk about the dating game killer. This case is really interesting and fascinating. It's interesting that this man wasn't caught sooner and he got away with killing so many people. And as he was in the middle of killing people, he was also able to get on TV on a dating show and participate in the show without having to worry about his background. I feel like he had a lot of confidence to be able to do the things that he did and walk around the way that he did while he had this whole secret life that really wasn't all that secret. The police believe that his kill count could be way over 100. Before I get into the whole story, I just wanted to mention that I do get my sources from different places and I put the story together. Some of it is also from my memory of listening to podcasts or watching documentaries on it. You can always find my sources on the show notes. But anyway, for this particular case, I remember a while back I listened to a podcast called The Dating Game Killer and they went more into depth about uh, his whole crime spree and who he was and the things that he did and just the whole case. So if you want a more in-depth podcast about it, I recommend going there. Okay, so who was he? His name was Rodney Alcala. I'm going to start the story of when he was 17 years old. At 17 years old, he joined the army. While in the army, he had a mental breakdown and he ended up being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Because of this disorder, he was medically discharged in 1964. I believe what happened was that he had ran away from the army and was considered AWOL until he was finally found, uh, but then they realized that something was going on with him and he was going through some type of episode and then that's when they were able to diagnose him. After the army, he went to the university at USC and then he transferred to UCLA. As I mentioned, I'm from California, I'm from LA, and these two schools are very, very prestigious schools. They are hard to get into and they're very expensive, so the fact that he was able to go to these schools is pretty impressive, and also just the fact that he graduated from them is pretty impressive as well. In 1968, he graduated with a degree in fine arts. His first known crime was in 1968 in Hollywood, California. He saw a little girl named Tally Shapiro walking from the hotel she was staying at to her school, which was nearby. He told her he wanted to show her a picture and she said she was taught to be polite and respected her elders and so she decided to get in the car with him. Just a quick side note, I think I was watching a 2020 episode on this a while back and they were interviewing her and that's when she said that she had been taught to be polite to her elders and respect them and I think he lured her by telling her that he knew her parents and he wanted to show her a picture or something like that. It could be wrong. I, I, it was a little while ago so I don't remember but my point is that a lot of people especially back then were taught to respect their elders and I know people who got taken advantage of because their parents would tell them that they have to respect their elders and listen to them and whatever they want you basically do and it's just a really toxic lesson that is taught or was taught and I just want to share that because many people might not realize how toxic or how maybe not toxic but how dangerous that lesson could be to a child so just teach your children that they're able to say whatever they want to say and if they don't feel safe they have a right to say no 
So luckily there was a man who saw him lure her into his car and he called the police. He just felt like something was wrong. He didn't like it and he called the police and luckily there was an officer nearby who responded and so he was able to track down where they had gone and he knocked on the door. Rodney did hear the knock and he called out and said that he would be out in a little bit, that he was getting out of the shower, but luckily this officer knew that something felt wrong he just felt like he was taking too long and he decided to take that chance and he kicked the door down unfortunately by the time that he did kick that door down rodney was able to escape the police officer saw rodney leave through a back door but he also saw tally on the floor unconscious raped and beaten with a steel bar so he had to make the decision of who to go after and he decided to stay with tally tally survived and rodney ended up leaving or I guess fleeing California and went to New York. When he got to New York, he decided to use an alias named John Berger and he enrolled in New York University and studied film. And interesting, he ended up studying under Roman Polanski. If you don't know who he is, he's like this famous writer, producer, director, and actor. And he actually also fled from the United States because he was wanted for, um, he was awaiting sentencing for unlawful intercourse with a minor. So that's just an interesting little tidbit. When summer rolled around in 1970, he ended up getting a job in New Hampshire at an arts camp for children as a counselor. And he used a, a new a- alias, John Berger, this time with a U, before he went uh, Berger with an E. In 1971, some campers went to a gas station and saw an FBI wanted poster for a man named Ronnie Alcala. They didn't know that name, but the picture that was on there was John Berger. So the campers went to the camp director and they let him know what they saw. And the director told them it was probably nothing, but luckily he did go check it out. He agreed it looked like him and so he called it into the FBI. Rodney was then arrested and extradited back to California. But by this time, Tally's parents decided to relocate the entire family to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, because they just didn't want, they just wanted to put the whole thing behind them. They sort of wanted to pretend like it didn't happen. She had some issues with her memory, so she really didn't remember being attacked. She says that she just remembers getting to his apartment and then everything went dark. Since Tally was living in Mexico, she could not testify against Rodney, so the prosecutors decided that it would be best to not convict him of rape and attempted murder, but rather just permit Rodney to plead guilty to a lesser crime. In 1974, he was paroled after only 34 months because he appeared to be rehabilitated. Two months after that, he was arrested for violating parole. He had provided marijuana to a 13-year-old girl named Julie J, who said that she was kidnapped. He was arrested again, and then he was paroled again just two years later. In 1977, he applied for a job at the LA Times. The LA Times did not run a background check on him, so they just didn't know of his criminal history, and they hired him. He was hired as a typesetter, but he told all his co-workers that he wanted to be a photographer. Another interesting little tidbit. While he was working there, he was required to cover the Hillside Strangler murders. That's interesting because the detectives confused some of his victims for the victims of the Hillside Strangler. I'll probably cover that case later on. Anyway, while he was working there, he would go to public public places and tell young women that he was a professional fashion photographer and that he wanted to photograph them for his portfolio. During this time, he was actually questioned by the FBI in regards to the New York murder of Ellen Hover. She had left a note on her calendar that just said, 
John Berger. He was later incarcerated for possession of drugs but was let out. In 1978, shortly after his last time locked up, he had already killed two women but decided to apply to be a contestant on a TV show called The Dating Game. He was a convicted rapist and registered sex, def- sex offender but the show never ran his background either. The way the show worked was basically there was a woman and she couldn't see the three men that were the contestants and they would ask she would ask them questions and they would answer and then she got to pick who she wanted to go on a date with the show had a lot of sexual innuendos and it was meant to be entertaining and silly you can actually find a little clip of his time on that show and it's pretty interesting to watch just knowing what he had already done and how confident he was and how easily he was able to answer all the questions and he just seemed pretty charming and gave no hint about who he really was and what he had done i believe you can find the clip on youtube he was introduced on the show as a quote successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13 fully developed between takes you might find him skydiving or motorcycling as i said the game was all about sexual innuendos and double entendres and like here's an example of, of something that was said so the the woman was cheryl bradshaw and she asked what type of food he would be and he said quote, the banana, and I look really good. Peel me. The interesting part is that Cheryl actually ended up picking him contestant number one. After the show ended, it was supposed to be that Cheryl and Rodney would have their date that was paid for by the show. However, the next day, Cheryl called the show and she asked, was it absolutely mandatory for her to go on the date? And they told her no. And they asked her why. And she said it was because after the show, Rodney seemed to act very differently than he did on the show and that she just um, felt very uncomfortable and that he was creepy she literally used the word creepy to describe him and that she just like didn't feel comfortable going on the on the date later on contestant number two actually described him as a quote very strange guy and he also said that he had a lot of quote bizarre opinions so this is the reason why they call this the the dating game killer just because he was on that show called the dating game and like i said they didn't run a background check and at this point he was already a sex offender and had already attempted to murder somebody and he just got to be on tv and have his 15 minutes of fame now we move on to robin samso so robin samso was a 12 year old girl from huntington beach she was hanging out with her neighbor a girl that was around her age So she was about to leave to ballet class on June 20th, 1979. The aunt of her friend saw a man matching Rodney's description talking to the girls and it is said that he was saying that he wanted to take pictures of them and that he was trying to get them to leave the beach. The aunt did not like the situation and she made the girls come back with them and when the man saw her, he quickly walked away without saying a word. Robin told them that she was going to go get her bicycle to go to class but she was never seen alive again. Her body was found 12 days later, decomposing in the foothills of LA. Side note, this will come back later. Her earrings were found in a locker in Seattle that belonged to Rodney. Like I said, I'll come back to that. I just wanted to make that clear now because there's a few things found in that locker. He was convicted for Robin's death in 1980. However, it was overturned by the California Supreme Court because the Orange County Superior Superior Trial Judge allowed for the jury to hear about Tally's case and the other rape and kidnapping convictions he had in the past and they felt like that wasn't relevant to this case. 
They also argued that the aunt of Robin's neighbor, the aunt of the friend that she was talking to, did not know for sure that it was the that the photographer was indeed Rodney. It was just a man that fit his description. Rodney says that it was not him and that he was at Knott's Berry Farm at the time. He was convicted again and sentenced to death for Robin's murder in 1986, but then that was also overturned. In 2003, they were working on a third prosecution when investigators matched Rodney's DNA with the semen found at a rape murder scene of two women in LA. In 2004, there was another DNA match that led to his indictment for four women. Jill Barcombe, who was 18 and died in 1977, she was originally thought to be a hillside strangler victim. Georgia Wickstead, who was 27 and killed in 1977. She was bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment. Charlotte Lamb, who was 31 and was killed in 1978. She was raped and strangled in El Segundo. And Jill Parento, who was 21 and was killed in 1979. And she was killed in her Burbank apartment. In 2003, prosecutors were petitioning to combine the cases of Robin along with Jill, Georgia, Charlotte, and Jill, but Rodney contested the motion. In 2009, the California Supreme Court allowed the cases to be combined, and so Rodney faced trial again, but after several trials, he decided that he wanted to act as his own attorney by the third trial, just like uh, Ted Bundy and so many of these narcissistic sociopaths or whatever they are. In March 2010, he was sentenced to death for the third time, and at the penalty phase of the trial, Tally Shapiro made an appearance after years of not dealing with what happened to her as a child. A criminal profiler named Pat Brown suspected Cheryl's rejection on the dating game could have caused him to become violent, or at least to amplify his rage, because serial killers do not take rejection well, and they don't understand it either. He likely thought she was playing hard to get or that something is simply wrong with her. He wrote a book in 1994 titled You the Jury, in which he claims he is innocent of Robin's murder and says someone else is the real killer. The New York officials can file charges against him because he is the main suspect in the 1977 murder of Ellen Jane Hover. He was working as, as a security guard at the time of her murder in New York. He's also the main suspect in another case, um, the murder of TWA flight attendant Cornelia Criley in 1971 while he was enrolled at NYU. He pleaded guilty to this murder and to the murder of Ellen in 2012. In April 2010, the Huntington police released 120 of Rodney's photographs of women to the public to help find additional victims. In the first few weeks the pictures were released, about 20 women came forward to identify themselves. If anyone has any information on these photos, please call Detective Patrick Ellis at 714-536-5971. Most of the women in the photographs he has taken remain unidentified and police suspect they could be victims. A lot of these cases of these serial killers are very old and people feel like it happened a long time ago and maybe it doesn't matter anymore or that they won't be able to find the victims or solve these cases. But the truth is there's so many cases that are being solved nowadays by the use of some things as simple as social media. So I do encourage people to take a look at those photographs and maybe you might recognize somebody, show your aunts and uncles or grandparents or anybody who might have been around that area or those areas at the time that he was active. You never know, you might be able to close a case or help somebody to figure out what happened to their loved one. I'm gonna go quickly back to the Seattle storage locker. 
I can't remember exactly what happened, but they were checking his house or the police were checking. They were investigating something and one of them saw, I believe they found a receipt for a locker in Seattle and they couldn't take it because um, it wasn't on the search warrant, but he ended up taking a picture of it and he just had a hunch about it and decided to check out that storage locker. And when they did, they found a lot of photographs in there. They found some jewelry. Some of those photographs were women and girls that were posed and like naked and might like some of them were engaging in sexual acts some of those women posing are in like like in remote settings like um how uh, robin samso was like where her body was found several of those photographs are of little girls or young young girls i will actually include the Flickr link to those photographs so you can take a look if you want to uh, it'll be in the show notes. Currently, Rodney is still alive and on death row. He is to be killed by lethal injection. Even though there's a bunch of inmates on death row, California doesn't really execute anybody, so he will likely die of some other natural causes or some, some other way. But as of right now, he's still alive and he pops up on the news every once in a while. Oh, also before I forget, I did also want to mention that it is, it's suspected that perhaps there might be victims in Washington and in, in Seattle or maybe even along the way, but they're, they don't know for sure. They just think it's possible. So just keep that in mind while looking at those photographs. It's really crazy because I think this is a very interesting case and when I first heard about it, I remember I felt really interested and I was like, it was almost in a weird way exciting. Not exciting, it's just intriguing, very, very interesting and uh, I really enjoyed the case in general. But for some reason, I really went through this very quickly. This is, this is a really, really short episode. But as I said, if you really want an in-depth look into this case, the Dating Game Killer podcast is really good and they go into way more details than I did. I suggest you check it out. I don't remember, but I think it's like six episodes or something like that. Well, I guess that's it for today. That was very short. I apologize, but those were pretty much the main points of, of him. It's, again, like so interesting that he was able to do so much. And, you know, something that I find actually really interesting is that he was able to reinvent himself so many times and he went to school in New York with a different name and he was just able to be whoever he wanted to be and he was able to do whatever he wanted to do and nobody knew. And it's just so funny that something as simple as a background check would have alerted somebody as to who he was, but they didn't do it. They just trusted that he was a good good guy or whatever. Even just getting a job, he worked for the LA Times and it's just so funny because he literally was on the case of his basically like his peer, the Hillside Strangler. Also, as I said, this one is pretty interesting to me because a lot of where he found his victims are places that I've been to. That story about um, Tally Shapiro, I've passed through there exactly where she walked millions of times. I mean, I, it's a place that I can picture in my head perfectly and I know exactly where she was. And it's just really crazy to think that he was here where I am. You know, I obviously I didn't exist at that time, but it's it's just really crazy. It's like it's a home. I guess it's like a hometown murder situation. The only thing is, I like I said, I live in L.A. and there was so many serial killers around the same time all working pretty much 
at the same time. And it's just, it's just crazy. And so many of these people hit places, like I said, that I've gone to a thousand times. So it's just really eerie to read these stories of where he picked these girls up and how he lured them. Because who knows, maybe if I was a, a kid back in that time, maybe I would have been a victim or maybe I would have fallen for whatever trick he used. All right, so I'm going to wrap this up. Remember, you can send me an email at crimecastlepod at gmail.com. Anything you want, let's discuss murder. Let's talk about it. I know that some people act like it's something to be afraid of. Maybe you've been into it for a long time and you felt shame. But I think we're all figuring out at this point that there's a lot of us that enjoy it, that we like to listen to it. And obviously, it's not like we enjoy it because we're some kind of sadistic person. We like to listen because we like to feel like we're prepared and we just like to hear these stories so we never end up like that and also just the psychology of why these people do the things that they do because normal people obviously don't think that way and so it's pretty fascinating to try to understand the thought process of somebody who somebody who kills thanks for listening later (laughs) 